Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary, Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer who loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM. I'm really excited for my guest today. I am joined by Beth Stone-Smith, an entomologist that I had the pleasure of going to high school with and running track with. Beth discusses the work she does in the government to protect our food supply and her perspectives on being female in agriculture. Please enjoy her story. So Beth, I am absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today. I haven't talked to you until the last couple of days. We've been talking about the podcast for, I figured this out, like 31 years. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. That is crazy. I'm really excited to talk to you and just find out what's been going on with you and to learn about what you do because I had no idea what an entomologist is. (laughs) I even had to look it up. (laughs) And most people go, and why? (laughs) We can talk about that too. (laughs) So we went to school together at Moorhead High and Mm -hmm. you were two years younger than me. Yep. And you ended up in California. So you live in Sacramento, right? Correct. How... Well, actually, okay, so first before I talk about that, I do want to talk about track, because that's how I knew (laughs) you the best. Yes. (laughs) And you were like a cheetah. like. (laughs) God, I wish I was still a cheetah. Dang. (laughs) So you were probably the fastest, I mean, you were for sure the fastest woman on our track team by far, but I almost want to say, were you like the fastest woman in the state? I didn't win. I I was a state champion in long jump, but I did not win um, in the 200 or the 400 or the uh, the races that I did. Like I would qualify for state in those, but I would play sixth. So, but didn't you? I mean, you did these like time trial things at like the sports medicine clinic. Yeah, and well, you run something to like twenty miles an 20 hour. Twenty miles an hour. Yeah, they had a twenty mile an hour club, and so after you did a workout, and the workouts were usually really intense, then you had to run twenty miles per hour unassisted for a certain length of time. And I was the first female to do that out of for a long time, and then the second female. Kelly LeClaire. Um, her dad actually played professional football for the Bengals for many, many years. And she was the second one that up there that was able to do it. So yeah, the 20 mile per hour club. And that doesn't sound like it's very fast, but when oh you're my doing God, it that on sounds, a treadmill, yes, it does. <laughs> really for a really long distance fast. runner who's now really slow and old, that's <laughs> insane. That's and they made you do insane. it when you were they made you do it when you were done with a workout too. So, um, they wanted it to be a challenge. Oh my gosh. I, I, I can't even imagine like, yeah. Can't. I forgot all about that. <laughs> I don't know how I remember that. <laughs> forgot all about that. Well, and that was always the ri- original intent for career paths for me. I was always going to go into something sports related. So exercise physiology or sports psychology were kind of the things I sort of had my eye on. And then that all changed in college. <laughs> so as things do. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. Cause you went to Kansas state, right? Well, so I did my freshman year of college at Marquette University and I ran track and I did not like living in downtown Milwaukee. That was too hard for me. Uh, So I came back home and finished my last three years at Concordia. So I actually graduated from Concordia. Yeah. With a biology degree. And then Kansas State was for my master's degree in entomology. 
Okay. What made you go from wanting to be in exercise physiology to entomology? Uh, a lack of confidence. <laughs> I thought my I thought my grades weren't going to be good enough to get into exercise phys school because at the time it was kind of like getting into physical therapy graduate program and you had to have straight A's. You had to be, you know, and I and I had good grades, but I was not straight A's. I played two sports in college. I worked two jobs. Academics were important, but I was not a straight A student. So I didn't think I would be able to get into into exercise phys school. So I didn't try. And I had a teacher at Concordia, um, Jack Powers, who taught invertebrate zoology and entomology and some other classes. And I clicked with him and his teaching style. And so when I got done, I thought, eh, maybe let's try entomology. I grew up in agriculture because of the, the family business that my, my parents had with hardware and farm supply. So I was around farmers a lot. I was into insects as a kid. And so I thought, yeah, I want to get away from home. How about a couple of years at Kansas State for entomology? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Like, I think it's so funny how like teachers can have such a big impact because mm -hmm. I always said that my math teachers are the reason that I became an engineer. So what else did you do in college? What other sport did you do in college? I went back to playing soccer. So when the women's soccer coach at Concordia heard that I was home, he was actually someone I played soccer as a kid with his son. Because back when, when I played soccer, they didn't have a girls league. So I grew up playing with the boys. Um, and so the father of this kid I used to play with was the coach at Concordia and he wanted some speed on his team and he knew me. So mm. he recruited me to, they had already started the season my sophomore year and they recruited me to come out. I hadn't touched a soccer ball since I was 12 years old <laughs> and they brought me in and, and yeah, it was the best thing I could have done. Best team sport, you know, I mean, track, you're kind of on your own yeah. and I love track, but soccer was the best shape I've ever been in. And that team dynamic and, and being able to watch myself improve because I'm sure the girls on the team were like, who is this and why is she here? Because <laughs> oh, I couldn't awesome. do anything with the ball. I mean, I hadn't played since I was a kid, but I played a lot as a kid. So it came back. Oh, that's awesome. Did you live at home when you went back to Moorhead? I did. Yep. How was that? Hard. Cause my, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my, my parents were pretty strict. My mom was pretty strict on curfew, even in college. So having been away for a year and having some freedom and then coming back home was hard, but I was working a lot. I was in sports. I had a full load of classes. I was tired. So it, you know, it was nice to have my laundry done for me and not have to worry about food. And so I would, I want to start like a very basic level of what, what does an entomologist do? So, well, when I first went into entomology in graduate school, I had no idea that the job I currently do even existed. So typically um, entomologists may go into teaching at a university or a community college. I was in the laboratory that focused on integrated pest management. So it was really focused on agriculture and farmers and things that affected agriculture directly, as opposed to working in a laboratory on an insect group like my husband does. So I had no idea that the agency I work for now existed. I just thought I'd end up working in a lab somewhere, doing some research or teaching something somewhere. I didn't really have a 
a clear path or desire. I just knew that I liked agriculture and I liked insects and I was going to go to school and figure it out. Did you meet your husband in college then? If, you, if he's also, yeah, is he yeah, also an entomologist? State, he is. So he was doing his master's at the same time at Kansas State as I was. So we met in classes there and he wanted to go on for a PhD. And I had a couple of professors approach me about doing so as well, but I didn't think two PhDs in the family was a good idea because you typically then end up trying to get a job at a university and trying to have a husband wife team hired at a university. (laughs) That just doesn't, it doesn't work unless they need your specific area both of you at that university. So I just thought I'll just work and support us and he'll finish school and then we'll figure it out. Well, and I'm guessing, and this is just a guess because I know nothing about entomology, but I'm guessing that you'd have to have a pretty big department for there to be two people that need to be hired too. Yeah. And they would like, he does molecular genetics. So he looks at how related different species of insects are. And the way that's useful in practical terms is, you know, there are fruit flies across the world that cause damage to different agricultural crops. And if you can trace back where that population of that insect you detected came from, then you can try and close the pathway on how it got there so that you're not continually importing those invasive pests. That's just one of the things that it can be used for. So he does teaching and basic research, and I work for an agency that actually takes action on invasive pests that affect agriculture. So you guys are kind of in the same area then? Yeah, he's still, he's teaching and more laboratory based um, and kind of lives in that university world Mm -hmm. of, of entomology, whereas I'm on the more practical side. I'm, we call our agency an action agency. We're trying to help farmers and growers in real time with whatever is economically impacting them in the insect and plant disease world. So you had talked about that you didn't necessarily know like what you wanted to do with entomology. Do you, did you know what an entomologist did when you decided to go to grad school? In it? Not really. I just thought bugs were cool. I mean, as a kid, I used to collect all kinds of stuff. You know, those, remember those little plastic um, insect catchers and mm-hmm. they had like a little plastic leaf that stuck in the middle of them. And then like a two tier thing. I had like dozens of those things and I would, go around the lake and collect frogs and collect insects and collect things that probably a lot of kids don't do. So I guess I always had kind of a connection to nature and, and unknowingly insects. <laughs> so as an engineer, when I talk to my friends that are engineers, none of us really knew what engineers did when we were growing mm-hmm. up. Like even once we were in school, we're still like, what do engineers do? Yeah. Is it, is it that similar to similar? Okay. Yeah. I mean, other than just knowing people do research and they teach classes on it. I mean, that's all you're exposed to when you go to college or even grad school. And then to know that there are other uses for it that are that are more hands-on, I guess. If you're not working for a farmer, I mean, in California, you literally have people that are called pest control advisors and they're licensed and they go out and scout the fields for different pests, and then they decide on treatment regimes to try and take care of whatever is damaging their crop in an economic way and take care of it. So that's something you don't hear about growing up in Minnesota, really. But out here, it's a $50 billion industry for agriculture in California. 
so many crops grown, different climates. Um, so, I mean, it's big business and there's lots of little jobs you don't ever know about that are happening every single day. Did you get clarity on that? Like when you were in grad school, did that, did you start, you know, figuring more things out than you would have like at an undergraduate level? I think I got a better, yeah, definitely. Cause you're more focused and you're just experienced, you're, you're exposed to other people that are doing different kinds of research. So then your eyes kind of open to what's possible, especially working in a, I mean, we did corn rootworm experiments in graduate school. And so you're out in the Western Kansas in the middle of a field, pulling out corn roots, <laughs> carrying them over to the professor to have him rate the damage for the pest. And then you're writing up papers and learning the process of the science uh, and the impact that insects can have. And so you're, you're hands-on, real-time learning about it versus just sort of going, oh, yeah, I guess insects are important. I guess they're pollinators. Oh, I guess they can impact ag, you know? <laughs> People don't really know. I mean, it's, it's huge business because you're, because you're planting a monoculture. So in agriculture, you're planting acres and acres and acres of the same thing. So if you get a pest in there, I mean, mm. hallelujah, give me a field full of chocolate chip cookies and man, let me go to town. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> what brings you from Kansas to California? So my husband actually had a job. So my original plan coming to California was I was going back to get my teaching credential for high school. And I wanted to teach biology to high school students. And I wanted to coach women's sports teams in high school. And in the process of coming out to take the test to get certified to teach, I decided to also do a job interview that we had found online with the United States Department of Agriculture. And so I thought, eh, what the heck, I'll just do the interview too while I'm out in California. And the presentation and the problem was so intriguing and important that I told my husband when I got back and they actually offered me the job that I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to use my degree that I went to grad school for. And I'm going to go ahead and, and take a chance on this and try it out. And 19 years later, <laughs> I'm still working on that program and a lot of others. So that was like literally like your first job out of college and you're still there. I mean, probably not school. at the same job, yeah. but at the same. Yeah. Out of okay. grad school, I've had 19 years working on this one insect pest. It spreads a disease to grapevines and kills grapes. We've got 900,000 acres of grapes in California, uh, wine industry, table grapes, raisins. It's a big deal for us. And so I still work on that. And then as I've moved up and expanded in my responsibilities, I have other pests and other things that I deal with too. What I got out of what you just said is that you get to go like hang out in vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> sounds really romantic, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it sounds like way better field trips than I would take in my job. <laughs> I have done a lot of winery tours over the course of 19 years. And interestingly, I have only, as of the last two years on my birthday, um, ever partaken in drinking wine on a winery tour because it was not work-related. So when I'm working, I'm 
I'm not partaking. You're you're going through the winery yeah, and you're yeah. you're seeing their <laughs> seriously. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just thinking that would that's probably worse. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Because you're you're looking at their process and how they're cleaning things. So you're looking at it from a scientific perspective on okay, if they have grapes that have an insect pest in the grapes coming into the winery and they're going through their process, where can all of the life stages of that pest get stuck in the process? And then they have to clean things to get that taken care of so there's there's these sanitation practices and regulatory things that we look at that have nothing to do with tasting the wine (laughs) or experiencing a winery like like tourism and the public does do you ever see things in these wineries that make you go like oh i don't want to ever drink wine from this place no it's a pretty it's a pretty intensive process and for the most part if if a winery is going to be successful they and it's growing grapes and making wine is really complicated, like really complicated. So these people are scientists in their own right. Um, and it's a pretty tough system. What is a, what's a typical day in your life? And I know like when I ask this question to my friends that are engineers, there is no typical day. So I'm going to just put that little caveat in there, but what would be a, if there were a typical day, what would you do on a typical day? Typical day is probably pretty boring <laughs> for the most part. Um, for me, I handle a lot of work plans and budgets related to pest surveys and insects that are a threat to California. So I look at a lot of paperwork. Um, I handle the money and I have to look at if the work plan makes sense from a scientific perspective on that pest. So basically I'm looking at a lot of paper and I'm doing a lot of email and I'm probably having phone calls with grape industry or other program officials to talk about what the needs are, what we need to do next, a lot of logistical stuff. So I'm not really in the field that much. I'm not really looking at insects that much, except on paper. It's all kind of bureaucratic keep the money moving so that the surveys can get done so that you're detecting things early before they become a problem. We have part of our agency that deals with trade and export and other countries when you're exporting grapes or potatoes or apricots or cherries or anything, they don't want the pests we have here and we don't want the pests they have coming to us. So there's lots of protocols and treatments and reviewing and negotiations that happen on that side of things too. And I'm just starting to get involved in more of that. Okay. So that's actually kind of interesting. Cause I know that like once like a pest goes someplace, it can like completely wreak havoc. I, I don't know a lot about yep. bugs, but I, I do know that. So <laughs> how do you, how do you prevent that? Oh boy. There's all kinds of, so a, a first step is just a detection system. So you put out a trap in pertinent places for for certain pests to try and detect if it's gotten in. We have things at airports and at the border where inspections are taking place on commodities coming in for agricultural pests. People don't really know or understand that that's happening a lot. Customs and Border Protection, um, not only do they look for drugs and people smuggling other things in, they also look for agricultural pests. There's, yeah, there's lots of lots of activities and lots of money going towards trying to protect our food supply and to protect foreign markets for growers so that farmers can survive uh, they can export their products if they want to and at off times of the year like winter time 
you're not going to get California grapes, or if you do, they've been in cold storage for a really long time and you don't want them anyway. But you're going to get grapes from Mexico or you're going to get grapes from Chile, from the Southern Hemisphere. But in order for those grapes to get into the United States, if that area has a certain pest, they're going to be treated for that pest. So there's protocols that that country has to comply with in order to then get their product in. And then we have inspectors that inspect those things as they're coming into the United States. So does that mean that if I'm like, if I'm buying something organic, does that mean it's probably not coming from outside the United States because it probably has to have some kind of treatment? Correct. Depending on what it is. Yep. Okay. If you're getting table grapes from Chile, they will have a treatment for any number of pests. There's one certain treatments that will take care of a multitude of pests, but they also, some of those treatments have a cost to the product. So the cost being the physical look and things get really squishy with certain, they don't last as long. They don't stay as fresh after some of these treatments. And then they've been in in route for a certain length of time in order to get all the way to Minnesota (laughs) or get into your grocery store. So this is like a completely like not related to science question, but if I'm trying to get these pesticides off of my food before I eat it, what is the best way of doing that? Depends on the, on the product. You always wash your grapes, always wash your strawberries. Citrus, I always kind of wonder about organic wise, because if you're not using the peel, the inside of the orange, you're fine. If you're not using the rind for anything, you're not cooking with it, you're not, then you don't have to really worry about it as much. But yeah, washing your, washing your food, at least rinsing it off is good, especially for grapes. So what about like in college, did you, were there many women in your classes? Like once you got into like your master's program and and stuff like that, and you started getting more specialized in, into entomology. What is that space like? There were a few women um, in graduate school, definitely mostly men. I mean, most of your professors were men, especially getting into the side of entomology that's more agriculture-based. Kansas State is is a land-grant institution, so it's mm-hmm. an agriculture school. So you're getting a lot of kids, a lot of livestock, um, kids that want to go into livestock issues. You've got a vet school. Um, it's, it's the ag school. So if you're wanting to go into agriculture related versus, versus a university like University of Kansas, that's the medical school or the engineering school. Although K-State had a really good engineering program too. Yeah. Not that many women, which was kind of, I don't know, I guess growing up in a hardware store and a farm supply store, I was used to not being around a lot of women. And my mom she was so active and so strong. I mean, she'd unload the loads of twine and the tires and all the stuff the men were doing off the trucks. So I always grew up kind of being a tomboy or being like one of the only girls. And I was, I was comfortable with that. So at least for a graduate school, it didn't really bother me uh, to not have a whole lot of other women. Cause I tended to connect. I still tend to connect with men really easily as mm-hmm. friends. But when it got into the job realm of working in California and as accepting of women as they are in California, I mean, our secretary of agriculture right now is female. Lots of leadership positions in industry are are female presidents. But where I was working in Bakersfield, uh, there was definitely some, uh, some issues with me being female and whether I was competent. I was young. Uh, Is she competent? So then it was just a matter of, of, 
representing myself who I am consistently and showing them I was competent and talking through the issues. And then people came around, men came around. Did you feel like you had to prove yourself more as a woman than you would have if you were a man? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And even when I, I had two to three years into the program when I first started and then my boss that was the director of the program retired and they moved me into his position. So I would three years into USDA job and uh, had some good background was had an education knew what I was doing. Um, and I remember being at a meeting and one of the big grower guys in the room who I had a good relationship with, I thought, made a comment in front of everybody. And he said, well, if you're taking this job, then it better get a nanny because I just had my son and caught me off guard. And I just, I, I was reeling for a while after that comment with him because surely he would not have said that had I been male. Mm-hmm. And I traveled a lot for work to meetings and people would say, well, what are you doing with your son? And I would jokingly say, well, I'm, put him in the closet, you know, no, he's got, <laughs> he's, he's got a father. He's home with him, you know? Yeah. I got a lot yeah. of that. Did you have any of that in college? I mean, like with professors or anything, or was college like fairly benign? College was pretty benign. Yeah. Luckily. Other than like comments, <laughs> which suck. <laughs> Yeah. And get in your head. Um, like, I mean, were there other, other issues with being, with being female and and stuff like that? And like, once you got into your career, I think I still, I still sense some of it with new people. I interact with a lot of industry people and I think there's always a constant proving myself. And I don't necessarily know that comes from being a woman, but sometimes it, it definitely feels like it. So I always take some gratification when I can, when I can finally see I've, I've won somebody over or they at least think I'm competent enough to be doing what I'm doing. (laughs) What you've been doing for 19 years. (laughs) Yeah. That they realize like, okay, she maybe has some critical thinking skills and she's, you know, detailed and, and trying to do a good job and has the industry and the program's interests at heart. But yeah, there's, it's still a male dominated field in agriculture here in California, for sure. Even though we've got a lot of women and a lot of really excellent women working in ag, it's still male dominated for sure. So the way that like in engineering, the way that I will liken the percentages of women is going to a conference and like the number of women in the bathroom. So <laughs> how long of a line you have to wait in? Never had <laughs> <Or> a line <laughs> <laughs> ever. <laughs> is it similar? Like, like really like, like that low in ag or is it? It depends on where the meeting is and what kind of meeting it is. I can go to one in the Valley where I used to work and there will be maybe three females out of 75 in the room. But if I'm at a scientific conference, the numbers are, are more equal. It just kind of, it kind of depends on the agency I work for. I mean, my boss is, is female leadership at the state level that we partner with head leadership is female. I mean, it just, it just kind of depends. California is so, so diverse and there's so many people and there's, I'm guessing some pretty good opportunities maybe then in some other places for women. And they've had a lot of leadership that's female. So I think that helps build the way for everybody else over time. And I know 
from Facebook that you travel, well, and you mentioned that you travel for work mm -hmm. and you've gone to, yep. I know that you've gone to other countries. What is that? Well, I have a couple of questions about that. So, but what is that like from a female perspective? Is it different? I mean, and it probably depends on what country you're in, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, and I, I've only really traveled for work, so I've always felt really accepted. Been to Chile a couple times and I was absolutely struck by how accepting they were of me as a woman and of me with my expertise. Um, Argentina was the same way. I didn't feel any sort of chauvinism uh, whatsoever. Whereas sometimes working with Mexican counterparts in that country, you can get a little bit of that. But South America, for at least the places I've been, have been just super on point with, you are the expert, you are here. Um, and that's all they care about. <laughs> they don't care whether I'm, I never get, Chile, especially when I first went, that was my first real international trip in 2007 for work. And I was, I remember coming back and thinking, wow, that was, there was no issues whatsoever with me being female and me being younger at the time. I mean, that was 13 years ago. So I, I love traveling and I mean, there's two different sides, like, it's like work travel and fun travel are two different things, but did you get to like do fun things when you were traveling and how did you find traveling overseas for work? Yeah, I didn't ever add on days to my trips, uh, mostly because when I've traveled, I've been trying to get back to my son or mm -hmm. when he was smaller and trying to, to juggle the family side of things and schedules. Um, but when I did go to Chile, uh, the first time I, I also got to go to Easter Island, they happened to have my insect that I work on, on Easter Island. <laughs> so a lot of people would love to go there for fun and I got to go there for work and climb in the side of a, of a volcano and, <laughs> you know, so to me, that's fun. So I didn't really get a whole lot of free time on trips. And the last time I went to Argentina was really my, I had travel issues getting there. So my little bit of free time I had was mm -hmm. taken up waiting in an airport. Mm -hmm. But to me, the interactions with people and getting to eat and observe and see the differences and see the similarities and build the relationships for me uh, that supersedes me doing something by myself on my own. I mean, I'd love to go see the mountains and go wine tasting in Argentina when I do go back again, but yeah, the work side of it has just been fantastic. So I can't complain. So you talked about, um, you know, when needing to get back to your son, which I think is something that most parents and moms particularly struggle with. How was, how old were you when you had your son and how was transitioning to being a mom and a career? Did you do anything part-time? Did you take more time off? What, what, how did, how did that go for you? Yeah, I was 30 to 31 when I had Adam. I traveled a lot, which I mentioned, but at the time uh, we were in a place where I had the support not only of my husband, um, but his family uh, in Bakersfield. So we had structure, even though I'm far away from my family in Minnesota, we had that side of the family to help with things. My son had some special needs diagnosed as a, at the time he was three and a half. And so uh, we needed some extra help, and I made some work sacrifices to give up some jobs I probably would have pursued uh, in order to stay where we were. 
but I, otherwise I worked full time. I, I worked in a building that was out in the middle of agriculture. So I did have some leniency in, in schedule as long as I kept my bosses clued in. It really wasn't an issue until we moved to Sacramento and then my husband still works in Bakersfield, which is four hours away. So I'm here with our son most of the week, just he and I, and then my husband comes up on the weekends. So scheduling hasn't been that bad, but um, yeah, I've definitely, I've altered my work goals and some things I would have chased after because of, because of family. And I don't regret doing that by any means, but yeah, there were some things that I probably would have gone after. We may be living in a different place than we are now had I done that. So, <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, it's hard because your priorities change. Like mm -hmm. once you have kids, like you have this trajectory and then you have kids and you go, Oh, the job's probably not that impor as important as the kid. Yep. And the kids are only around for 18 years, which you're working for like 30 or 40. So it's, um, I never thought of it like that. That's a good <laughs> way to look at it. Well, they don't like you for all 18 of those years anyway. <laughs> exactly. They don't so. talk to me anyway. So what's the point? <laughs> there are times though that you for sure want to be home more. I, I, I mean, at least, at least I did, you know, that I yeah. wanted to be home more with my kids and wanted to be around them. And, but I think that it's, it's always hard. Like you don't know if you're doing the right thing. You don't know what the right thing is half the time. And yep. You have and honestly, I struggled with motherhood to start off. I struggled with not knowing what to do. I struggled with not having the answers. I remember wanting to go back to work because I knew I had answers. I knew how to do things. <laughs> People asked me questions and I knew what the answer to the questions were. Well, and your kid doesn't come with a manual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And it's, and, and you expect to just have these like innate mother instincts. Right. Right. Like, so my oldest, she was colicky. She screamed all the uh, time. I can't believe that I had more. Because <laughs> right. It was so hard. And, and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to make it better. And then you'll have friends who like their kids are easy. <laughs> right. right. And you're like, Why and they're like, Oh, what are you talking you? about? What do you mean? Motherhood's so hard. Yeah, I, I struggled with, I, with baby stage a lot. Um, by the time we got to toddler, I love toddler stage. Yeah. But I had, yeah, I had a hard time. I was super engaged in work. I liked trying to, I'm a, I'm a problem solver and I like puzzles and I like people and I like interacting and partnering and talking in front of people. I like sharing information and the dynamic that happens with getting asked questions. Even if I don't know the answer, I just having that interaction, I thrive on that kind of stuff. So even now that's where my daily routine of work can be really taxing on me. And then I get these opportunities to travel or represent the program or the agency I work for. And those kinds of things just, they light me up. That's the kind of work I feel like I'm destined to do and I enjoy doing the most. It's just the opportunities to do that. You've got to do all the drudgery in between mm -hmm. to learn about the issue and the program and all of that. And then you get to do that stuff. And that's trying to get back to work after having a baby was kind of the same thing. It's like, I need some interaction. I need a partner. I need some, I need some problem solving and some puzzles to keep me engaged. 
Well, and other I, than is he hungry? Is he yeah. wet? <laughs> Sorry, should I put him to now? <laughs> I I would not have been a good stay-at-home mom. Like I, it just it wasn't in me. I I did work part time at for like a year after my older two, which was great. But I could not have stayed home, kind of for the same reason that you just said. Like I I I needed that, and I wasn't a good mom, or I wouldn't have been a good mom if I was home full time. Right. And I, I may have been okay with being home more. I didn't love where we were living, where we used to live. And I'm saying that really nicely because this is a podcast and I don't know who I listen to it. <laughs> um, I did not like where we lived. And so that for me was a struggle. And so the work thing was, was my outlet. It was friendships mm-hmm. and it was connection. And it was me getting to feel validated in a different way. Uh, and feel competent and like I was doing something that mattered to people and to farmers and to growers like I was I was contributing to a greater degree than raising a good human being (laughs) which is important too but I needed something more too what would you say like a couple of your biggest highlights in your career would be I worked on a program and I still work on it where we were actually able to eradicate it And it wasn't necessarily the eradication that I'm so proud of, although that's a really big deal in the insect world. That doesn't happen very often. The pest had been the first time we detected it in North America. And over the course of seven years, with a whole lot of people working together to get it done, uh, we were able to get rid of it. And so it wasn't necessarily just the getting rid of, it was all of those partnerships along the way. And it was all of the struggle and the figuring out and the discussions and the just trying your best and working through it and having sincere desire to do the right thing and working hard and watching a whole bunch of other people from county level, state level, international specialists helping us to get it done. It was That's still probably one of my proudest things. And that's one of the programs I have traveled for to Chile and Argentina is to teach them how we did that. So I've gotten to represent all of that work for all of those people. And it's relationships that are still important to me that people became friends and taught me how to be a better scientist, taught me how to be a better bureaucrat, taught me how to be a better person to look at things. So it's all of the stuff surrounding the program that I'm most proud of because of just going through the difficulty of it. So you kind of reminded me of something that is like really important to me, which is building relationships. That's probably Mm -hmm. like one of the most fun and rewarding parts of my job that you don't probably think of as like, when you think of an engineer that building relationships is really important, but is, is that similar to for you? Cause you kind of made it to sound that way. It's, it's critical for, it's absolutely critical for what I do because I, so I'm federal government. We partner with state government. We partner with county government. We partner with other federal agencies. We partner with industry groups, farmers, growers, you name it. It's trying to work together and it's not just a you listen to what I say because I work for the federal government that's not how it works you need to build some rapport you need to get buy-in they need to trust you yeah and I've one of the people I worked with he's retired now and he would always say to me it's all about the people and he spent decades in charge in Napa County as an agricultural commissioner. And I still get to interact with him because we're both on a technical working group together. And he's a friend, but that's the key. It's all about the people. The science and all that stuff has to come along too, but it's all about the people. 
And I think when you th like when you think about STEM careers and you think about science and you think about engineering, you're not thinking about the relationships and the people right. side of things. And I think that's one of the most fun parts is meeting these different people that are from different places and different walks of life and people that aren't like you and finding their stories yep. and learning about their kids. And, you know, I, I go to these industry conferences and it's like going to a family reunion and it's yep. so much fun. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what makes work, work worthwhile in my mind. You know, it's not, same. it's not really the technical stuff that I do. It's the people that I get to meet and the people that I get to know and, and understand. Absolutely. Some of my, some of my best friends have come from work yeah. Um, and some of my most important relationships have come from work. Some of the things I've, I've learned the most come from work. Yeah. It's, it's about the people I wouldn't, I wouldn't last in government with my personality, <laughs> jumping through the hoops and doing the process and doing the daily stuff. If there weren't really good people who I get to interact with at, in the federal government, there's some phenomenal people in federal government as well as state, county government and industry. It's, I wouldn't last without the people side of it. <laughs> it makes a world of difference. And I think that's one of the greatest benefits as you get older in your career mm -hmm. is that you have this like huge network of people that you have developed oh. over the years. And honestly, like, so a lot of people, when I started moving more into industry, were quite a bit older than me and now they're starting to retire and move out. And I, I get sad. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I've had many a mentor uh, over the years retire and I'm like, what am I going to do without that person? <laughs> well, and then they might be on the other side of the country. So you don't get to go to like the retirement parties and yep. stuff like that. And it's like, where's my work fun travel budget? <laughs> <laughs> to just go to a social event for work. <laughs> well, and I'm always thinking, even on the days where I'm struggling and I'm, I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, whatever, because all of that stuff happens when you're working. I, I don't always do it, but I try to do it. I try to be the responsive one. I try to be the one to build a bridge. I try to be the one to say thank you or throw a compliment or whatever, because to me, it's okay, when am I going to need that person again to help me. Mm -hmm. And I want them to want to help me, not just mm -hmm. that they have to do it for their job. I want them to want to help me. So I am in the, my head, I'm usually thinking, how do I build that bridge? Or how do I respond quickly to this so that I'm getting them what they need? So maybe they'll remember that next time when maybe I need something. What about challenges in your career? What kind of challenges have you had? Hmm. Hmm. I guess my current challenge and the ongoing challenge as I've gotten years in to the agency, I'm 19 years in to the agency I work for is just sustaining, sustaining, getting through the daily stuff. It's government. It's, it can be really tedious. I'm really good at tedious. I'm really good at details, <laughs> but sometimes because I'm really good at those things, I get more of those things from people. Oh, and that's, that's not the stuff that lights me up. That's not the things that drive me. So being really good at them is sometimes bad because <laughs> then they give them to me and then I don't have time to do some of the other things. So for me, it's just after 19 years, continuing to find those pieces of work that light me up and keep me going through the monotony and the changes and the things that maybe I don't always agree with, but I work for a very large organization and I'm not in charge. So if I want to have say, then I need to 
look at a different position or look at a way of framing it a different way and not just complaining or, or whatever. So challenges for me right now are just really being happy every day at work because I know my work is valuable, but sometimes the, the monotony and the tediousness of the detail drowns out <laughs> the enjoyment. <laughs> how many so emails <laughs> sign and how many emails am I going to get today and how many phone calls and now you know with current situation with the pandemic workload is very different uh, and new things are being thrown at us that and I want to just do my work <laughs> this week I got to have a, a web call with uh, a colleague in Uruguay and a couple of folks from Argentina that I worked with. And then the next day I got to have a web call with some folks in the United States and some experts in Italy. So this week has been a really good week. <laughs> oh, nice. Is there anything that you would do different in your career or your career choice? I, uh, yeah. And I actually joke that I missed my calling. I would have been an FBI agent <laughs> investigating serial killers instead of doing entomology. <laughs> you know, for been... some reason I could sort of see this. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. I would have been Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs, but a much better version of Clarice Starling. She was a little too mousy for my taste. Um... <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> I kind of have this. And you could chase them down. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Maybe. I have, I kind of have this thing about mysteries and murder mysteries. And I have a little bit of a side obsession with figuring those kinds of things out. So I may have done a completely different career choice. I really value the people I get to work with. I would probably just try and find, and I'm doing this now, trying to find ways of, of getting more interactions of those things that make me happy. So I'm about to get pushed into the trade and export side of the house for us in California because of a retirement of a colleague and her issues are going to all be coming under me. So as much as I'm afraid of handling that workload, I know that that specifically is going to open up doors for me to have more interactions and more work that I find engaging and valuable for me. So The challenge is just going to be able to manage all of it with all the other stuff and me being really task oriented and wanting to check things off and get them done Mm -hmm. so that I can move them off of my brain. I'm not good at letting stuff go. I think about it in the middle of the night. I wake up thinking about it. Oh my God, so do I. (laughs) Yeah, that's my personality. So it's managing all of that and taking on things and figuring out where I can be a benefit, but then also find some enjoyment for myself for work. What about, is there any advice that you would give to your younger self? Oh man, do it all over again. No, <laughs> Change it, it all. It goes by fast, doesn't it? It's a little scary because in the midst of it, it doesn't seem like it is. It seems like you're just kind of surviving sometimes. And then now you blink and yeah, how did I, how did I get 19 years in and there's still so much I don't know? <laughs> it's kind of what I feel like. Well, I think it's weird like getting... Cl- you know, like for so long, it's like retirement is this thing like way, way yeah. out there. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're starting to make plans, like actual plans for what we do when we retire. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, But I'm still 18. Where did that- exactly. 
I can still run really fast. You can see me in my head. Uh, I can't run really fast. I can't either. I can't either. But I remember being able to. Well, I, I was never anywhere near as fast as you, but I could run faster than I do now. And now I feel so slow. I'm like, it's just slow. It's painful. I'm like, where did that go? Is there any advice that you would give young girls thinking about a career in either entomology or biology or some kind of STEM field? I guess mostly the stuff that maybe you would expect people to say is don't let anybody deter you. The comments that other people might make that are negative are really about them. They're not really about you if they're directed at you. That really speaks to them. It doesn't speak to your abilities. So if you have a clear idea, I never really had a super clear idea of what I wanted to do exactly. It just kind of happened over experience and time. So I guess that too is don't be afraid of not knowing. If you don't know the exact job that you want, just keep having up, keep giving yourself opportunities and just keep working hard and keep being sincere and honest in what you're doing and you'll figure it out. Yeah. It, and it, it it's funny because it, it can take a while to figure it out. And yeah. you end up in places that you don't even know that you were going. I had friends that knew they always wanted to be a lawyer or they always wanted to be a doctor. Those were all my, all my best friends growing up knew what they wanted to do. And I always kind of felt like I don't really totally know. It's probably sports related, but I'm not sure. I don't have this passion inside of me that it's that and that and so I always kind of felt insecure and like a failure that I didn't know what I wanted to do even when I went to college really so yeah I mean I knew I wanted to do biology I was I was going to be a psychology major and then I changed after a semester and went biology and figuring that would open up whatever door I might want to go through exercise physiology or otherwise and not having any clue that it would lead to (laughs) insects well do you so <laughs> now that you have with a 16 year old because he'll be starting to think about college and stuff I think mm-hmm. like it's it's so interesting like when your kids get to be the age of like people are asking them what they want to do and stuff and they're like yeah. I don't know and I'm like it's okay to not know yeah. like go to college and figure it out yeah and I think Even, there's too much pressure to, yes, to know, know what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're 17 years old or 18 years old. That's crazy. No. Even you saying that you didn't really know what engineers did, that would probably be an avenue for Adam that might make sense. He's really talented in math and science, especially math. But I don't know necessarily what an engineer does. His, his cousin just graduated from the University of Minnesota with a mechanical engineering degree, I believe. But it's like, okay, so what do you do with that? What job? I don't know. I'm an entomologist, you know? (laughs) I'm in science. And and there's a thousand, well, there's more than a thousand different things that you do with an engineering degree, just like there's a ton of different things that you do as an entomologist. And so even if you have, even if you talk to somebody that is an engineer, that gives you like one tiny, tiny, tiny sliver into what you can do. Beth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so glad that we got a chance to catch up and it's been so much fun talking to you and I hope that we can keep talking again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about it and join me for future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.